You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Tyler, Cameron, great to get you guys on Real Vision. Um, you've been a very requested guest for us, so finally stalked you on Twitter to get you here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us, yeah. Not at all. Listen, obviously most people are familiar with your backstory, but I, I want to just start with the backstory of, of why Bitcoin? What, when did you get bitten? How? And how does your thinking, how has your thinking evolved from then? You know, we all have kind of a ground zero where we all kind of, got the epiphany. So talk us through a bit about that, the start in this whole space. Sure. Um, so we were um, actually on vacation in the summer of 2012 in Ibiza, of all places, where you find uh, great investments and ideas. And we uh, were recognized by a guy from Brooklyn from the movie The Social Network. And he started talking to us and said, hey, have you guys ever heard about virtual currency or Bitcoin? And we hadn't. So we started talking and connecting. Um, and then when we got back stateside, started to read a lot about it and we're like, wow, this is an incredible thing. We were sort of used to social networks and we realized that this is really like a money network. And you could, for the first time ever, basically send value through the internet like an email. And that was kind of the, the big aha moment from a technology perspective. And then when we were looking at the characteristics of Bitcoin and the fixed supply and understanding, we started to build this gold framework um, early on. And, and so once we kind of thought about it and, and concluded this is like a store of value and an emergent one, um, we started buying pretty quickly. And I think uh, we, we purchased our first coins in the um, like high single digits. Um, and I think the market cap was like under a hundred million at that time. It actually quickly grew, uh, that fall over the next six months, probably in part due to our, our purchasing, um, to, to some extent though we tried not to impact the market, but that's really, uh, the, the origin story of our relationship with Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. It sort of started on a beach in the Mediterranean and the last eight years have sort of been, uh, you know, we've been sort of addicted to to this this space, and and um, it's been really fun. But I'd say that our our gold 2.0 thesis or framework really hasn't changed in terms of how we think about the asset for the past decade. Yeah, interesting enough, my Bitcoin moment was 2012 in Spain. Um, I was living there, and we'd just seen our banking system always go under. And, you know, the whole of Europe had almost kind of collapsed. And having just gone through 2008 and having gone through that, and I was writing about it and I was kind of at the heart of the whole thing, I had this round table uh, with a whole bunch of kind of um, macro guys. And one of them came along and said, listen, the answer you're looking for is Bitcoin. And, um, and that started me exactly at the same time in the whole space. So what was the, did you kind of figure out that there was a Metcalfe's Law kind of adoption pattern that could evolve here with the system of money. How were you thinking about it in your gold 2.0 outside the store of the valley, store of valley, which is pretty well known. How are you thinking about this network effect? So well, it's interesting. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, Tar. I was just going to say that um, we started talking to Bitcoiners uh, pretty quickly. And uh, the sort of the energy we got from a lot of these folks was like, these are the smartest people in the room, especially the people who worked on protocols and were deep in that space. And when we tried to sort of uh, kill the idea, um, we really had trouble figuring out like how this thing doesn't work long term. Everything's sort of going digital, it's all going streaming. It kind of makes sense that our hardware money is now going online. And that first version, of course, is Bitcoin becoming gold. So we really sort of felt like this is going to happen. Um, and I think that. Uh, that was pretty pretty exciting and fun at the time. Tyler, go, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you yeah, off. But go no, ahead. I think also one big aha moment was this is the first money that was built for the internet. It works like your email. It wasn't built by bankers. So credit cards, 
Um, it's like square peg round hole. They were invented by bankers before the internet existed. So people have tried to shoehorn them, given the illusion that it works on the internet. PayPal is a great example. But when you look under the hood, it really doesn't work on the internet. It's not purpose built for the internet. So uh, Bitcoin was the first internet money um, you know, in the world. And when you realize that, you're like, whoa, that's a pretty big idea. And then when you realize that uh, money is the greatest social network of all, um, Bitcoin is maybe the greatest social network of all also. And as you said, the way you value a social network and network effects is Metcalf's law. You don't look at it like a cash producing com company um, or an equity and try and do some sort of discounted cash flow model. And I think that's what a lot of like Wall Street and finance people um, go astray because they sort of take their frameworks. They're like, wait, it's not a company. It doesn't have cash flow. It's worthless. There's no intrinsic value. Um, instead of looking at it like how you value Facebook and how each additional user provides additional utility to the other user without even knowing it. So if I'm the only person in the world who has a phone, what, it's not that valuable because who, who do I call? Um, but all of a sudden, if Raul, you buy a phone, then I can call you. And by you purchasing a phone, you've brought utility to me. And so the more people in the world that do that, the more valuable it is. And Mac, that's Metcalfe's law. Um, and it's just N squared, N being the nodes, being the users on the social network, being the users of, of Bitcoin. Um, and that's network effects. And we know how strong network effects are because we see the, the market cap of Google um, you know, face, Facebook and, and, and big t Twitter, big tech, and how hard it is to unseat these companies. Google took a run at social. I think it was called Buzz, um, fell flat on its face because not only one of the things about network effects is that users um, become the biggest champions of the network. Um, nobody wants to upload their pictures 10 times to 10 different social networks. So once you pick Facebook or your social network, you try and kill consciously and subconsciously all the other ideas because you just don't want the overhead of doing all your connections again, building your social network online again. So you become um, the greatest ambassadors for that. And it's really hard to unseat. Even Google, almighty Google, which was much bigger at Facebook back then, um, couldn't do it. So, you know, when you have the first... Uh, money ever built for the internet. Uh, you have the social network effects of money itself and you put Bitcoin next to gold and you compare the traits that make gold gold and you realize that Bitcoin um, equals or, or surpasses is superior than gold and all of those categories that we think make gold, make gold valuable, then you're like, this is a really big idea. And the other thing that, that really intrigued me about the whole thing is it's dawning on me more and more as I see the kind of tribalism in the space, which is a bug and a feature, is the fact that it's such powerful behavioral economics. It's an incentive-based network that is incentivized by money. I mean, you couldn't build a better incentive system for a network than money itself with an intrinsic value that has a store of value. It's, it's extraordinary. Yeah, right. people on Twitter are working for retweets and people on Facebook are working for likes. But with Bitcoin, you're working with value. If more people buy into the system, your your value does go up. Um, so it's it's yeah, the incentives are incredibly powerful. That happens in all asset classes. Like once you become a home homeowner, you look at real estate. You'll never look at real estate the same way. Once you buy your first car, you'll never look at a car the same way. You just it disciplines your eye, right? And that's what I tell a lot of people: just put a little chips on the table. Like get into Bitcoin, get into crypto. It'll, it'll focus you to, to learn, and then you'll get it. And there, there is a transformational shift that happens with people. Once they start feeling the pulse, they get in it. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's very positive. It, for me, that's how I learn. Um, you know, I have, to have, I have to put something at risk, a little bit of skin in the game. In, the, in this case, we put our whole bodies in the game because uh, we started a, a cryptocurrency exchange and custodian called Gemini, has 330 employees and, and growing. We're investors in Bitcoin, Ether, and other coins. Um, but it all started with you know buying Bitcoin, but learning about Bitcoin and not writing it off, and really just asking some basic questions that most people 
uh, can't seem to do. And they're like, oh, it's just a Ponzi scheme. And then they... So, so okay. So here's the, here's the thing. So you start investing in 2012. 2013 is a bull market. It then collapses. So that's the first collapse you've had to deal with in this. And then we obviously we have the second one. But how do you... Where did you get to in questioning yourself and your thesis every time you see it doing this 90% down cycle? Because it's pretty so tricky to deal the, with. The, uh, so before the 13 crash, though, um, there was the Cyprus bail-in. The Cyprus government said, we're going to haircut every bank account uh, over $100,000. So if you have a million euros, um, we're taking 900,000 of it. I believe that's what happened. Uh, it took a cut off everyone. Um, and that's when Bitcoin really hit the mainstream, at least of businesses like CNB Squawk Box. You really couldn't turn on like Bloomberg or some sort of um, business network without hearing about it. Because I think people realize like this is the only asset in the world where a government couldn't do that or it'd be very difficult. So um, when we saw that happen, we knew there was going to be a catalyst. We had built our thesis in 2012. When we saw that happen, we're like, it's the thesis is playing out. Like, this is exactly how it's supposed to work. So that was very, like, invigorating um, and encouraging because we're like, yes, the world's starting to get this. And then, of course, there's been uh, downturns and crypto winners. But, either t- but, but, you know, overall, like, that was super encouraging. I me- remember where we were at the time. Um, I think we were in Miami. Um, I think it was in March of 2013. Um, which is a scene that's captured in this book, Bitcoin Billionaires by Ben Mesrick, which we're portrayed in. Um, but it was quite an exciting moment, obviously really sad for the, for the folks of Cyprus, um, but hopeful because Bitcoin actually existed. And this wasn't that far off of, like you mentioned, the, the crisis of 2008, um, which we all uh, lived through and saw how devastating that was. Um, and so, so yeah, that, that happened. And so when you have those moments, you're like, okay, we're onto something, this is going to be big. And, and just like kind of the reasoning before there was like an inevitability about it all, just like there is an inevitability about the internet. I just couldn't figure out a way how this wouldn't work. And really to shut down Bitcoin, um, is to shut down the internet. So you really have to snip the cables. You basically have to become North Korea. And that is such a risky gamble for a government because you cut yourself off from the internet. It's not just Bitcoin. It's social network. It's big tech, which are the greatest economic drivers of at least the U.S. economy right now. And so our calculus was that governments are going to have to learn to work with this because they can't stop this because stopping it is to stop the internet. So come forward to the next bull market. So we're now 2016. Suddenly, there's a bunch of other cryptocurrencies that are coming into the front. And then we're seeing the forks. So I got out into that um, because I didn't understand the forks and how this was going to play out. How were you guys thinking about that at the time? Because that was a whole different world we all had to deal with then. 16 and 17, what was an interesting bull market um, but a lot of it was sort of driven, I think, by Asian real t- retail and people who thought that uh, you could sort of raise capital um, through token issuance without sort of going through the traditional regulatory path. And that pretty much proved to be false. Um, but I think it did sort of show the power of the Ethereum network and what could be done um, with smart contracts and that kind of... Um, ability to program decentralized apps. So it sort of showed what was possible in a first MVP. It's kind of like the pets.com of crypto. Um, and of course, it, it blew up in a big way. Ethereum, you know, peaked at, I think, 12, 200 a coin and is now around 600, which feels a little more real, though I still think it's an undervalued asset. Um, and of course, Bitcoin, uh, rode that wave and benefited a lot too from, I think, retail customers understanding really the properties. And for the first time, there was like a way to access cryptocurrencies in sort of a mainstream way. In When we were getting involved in 2012, we had to go to Mt. Gox, um, which stands for Magic, the Online Gathering Exchange. It started out as a magic card exchange um, and then pivoted into Bitcoin when Bitcoin was worth sort of pennies. 
Um, and uh, probably the greatest business pivot ever, except for they ended up um, uh, famously imploding uh, a few years later with a lot of value because they just sort of got ahead of their skis, so to speak. Um, they all of a sudden were on top of you know, 95% of Bitcoin volume, trading volume and billions of dollars of value. And it was just sort of two people in Tokyo and, and there was no licensing or, or any kind of real infrastructure behind it. <clears throat> anyway, we bought a lot of our first Bitcoin on Mt. Gox and that was a scary proposition. Fast forward to 2017, you could go to places like Gemini, the exchange we built, basically onboard like you would onto a broker dealer, any kind of brokerage account or open up an online bank and buy Bitcoin. So it was accessible uh, for a lot more people at that time. So it brought in a lot of new people into the system. So fast forward, obviously uh, the market cooled off and we're now sort of back at 20,000 or close to $20,000 Bitcoin. It's a much different story with much different facts. One of the biggest facts has been the growing deficit in fiat regimes across the globe, um, not just in the U.S. The U.S. is actually on a relative scale doing okay comparatively to other countries, but our debt, debt to GDP ratio, I believe, is 135%. We're closing the year out at 135%, which is higher than World War II. And back then, we had full employment. And now we have record unemployment. So um, it's a different set of facts. And the deficit has been growing every year over the past decade, even though we've technically been out of the, um, the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009. Uh, you know, that, we, that basically ended in 2009, technically. Um, the recovery was sort of, we were out of that, that cycle and, and on the way up. And so despite a tremendous sort of bull market um, where we've had incredible gains in the stock market, not saying the underlying economy and businesses or wages, but the actual stock market, and yet we're spending more than we make and we're printing money to um, basically finance um, some portion of government operations. Add a pandemic on top of that and people that um, are sort of died in the wool Wall Street veterans and people who understand um, how the value is eroding and the specter of inflation are saying, wait a second, this math is starting not to work. Um, this is not manageable. So how am I going to protect my value? And this time around, people are, are turning towards Bitcoin. You've got Paul Tudor Jones, you've got um, Stan Druckenmiller, you have um, Michael Saylor of, of MicroStrategy putting hundreds of millions of his publicly traded um, companies' treasury into Bitcoin. They're not going into gold. If this was the 70s, 80s, or 90s, or even 2000s, gold would be the classic hedge and the classic bet. And this time around, people are saying, wait a second, there's this new thing. Um, it's engineered like gold, but it's actually better. And it's built for the modern day. And that's, um, we think, going to be the trade of the decade. Even today at $20,000 Bitcoin, um, we believe that buying in at $20,000 will be the best trade you can make over yeah. the next 10 years. I came out of that macro community. So all of those guys are kind of friends of mine that we all kind of grew up in that whole space. And one by one, I think um, Dan Moorhead was first. Then it was probably, I don't know if you know him, John Burbank. Uh, and then probably... Novo, and then one by one, all the macro guys got it for the same reasons. This is before COVID. They were like, okay, the sheer amount of alpha you can generate in this space and the sheer magnitude of the opportunity is enormous. And now in my conversations with, with people, it's moving from everybody having it in their own PA accounts to everybody starting to get it in their funds. And Paul was the first to go, and then Stan as well. And we're seeing it, I mean, literally everywhere. So you guys, you know, having the exchange, and I mean, you built it out as an institutional platform to start with, then have been more involved in retail. But I'm guessing you're starting to see some of this institutional flow as well. Are you starting to see these kind of conversations being had? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, and we can say anecdotally that we're having some really interesting conversations from high net worth, um, you know, Wall Street veterans to sovereign wealth funds that are dramatically different today than even eight months ago or a year ago. Um, people were getting closer and starting to see the light. And I think a lot of these sophisticated investors have been quietly buying Bitcoin. That's what we're hearing. That's what we're seeing. Um, and then, of course, some people are being vocal about it. Um, but it's a much different kind of crowd than last time. Gemini sort of caters to the entire spectrum, though at times we have focused on institutional type products and, and that kind of trust and audits and things like SOC 1, SOC 2, um, and, and all those things, because that's really important to the institutional crowd. That's what they sort of come to expect from a platform. And one of the things that was sort of damaged a lot early on in crypto was trust. You have these really, these stories that are headline grabbing and kind of scare people away, which is really unfortunate because I think there'd be more people in crypto if, you know, the earlier entrepreneurs had done a better job of sort of protecting their customers. So that was a big part of our story the first couple of years is building the most sort of safe, reliable platform out there that's compliant. So here's a question. Do you think the narrative of not your keys, not your crypto is behind the times? Do you think that's still a kind of Mount Gox and earlier day narrative? Do you think the space is now actually secure enough to hold their significant balances on exchanges? I mean, not all exchanges. I mean, yeah, it's like not not your safe, not your gold, not your server, not your emails. Um, uh, Look, not, most your server, want to, not your servers, not your tweets. Twitter got hacked, right? Yeah, uh, right. Or you could get deplatformed. So we think it's a spectrum. Uh, I think, Tyler, you wanted to say something. Go ahead, jump in. Yeah, no, I was going to say, like, look, there's going to be the tinfoil hat crowd and the gold bugs who will never be comfortable using or trusting Gemini. Um, but the major exchanges in the space have not had any incidents for years. So ourselves, Gemini, Coinbase, Kraken, um, we've been incident free, right, for, for years. And we actually are all holding billions of dollars of value. So I think, you know, the, the space is not only ready, it's been doing it, and it will continue to do it. I think the average person is willing to trust Google with their email for the ease of use and the reliability and the simplicity of Gmail. Very few people have the energy and the brain damage and the skill set or want to go through the brain damage to run their own email server. Um, so I think you're going to see the same thing there um, that with email and crypto, like pirate radio, there's like all these very private, secure ends of the spectrum that never get mainstream adoption. So that doesn't mean... Um, like that the that the other end is less secure. It's just it requires a little bit of trust in us. And, and no, nobody uses PGP, right? Um, it, it's just too annoying. Um, I mean, we use it, but obviously the average person, it just really net, never had like but, um, but we widespread. Also use it like depending on like how sensitive the information is, right? Um, exactly. It's It's not a one size fits all. It's sort of what are you doing and what are you trying to, you know, if you're trying to transport, um, you know, passwords or secret keys, obviously you're going to encrypt it. But, but the challenge has always been sort of the experience and the ease of use. And that's why we think that 95% of people or, or the vast majority of people are going to use, you know, simple, easy, reliable platforms like Gemini to get into crypto Maybe they'll get, you know, get in. I mean, look, I got into AOL. I, I got into the, onto the internet with the AOL CD-ROM. They onboarded millions of people around the world. Um, I still don't have an AOL email address. <laughs> Some people do, you know, they never left the AOL uh, garden or experience. Um, and and, and the, I think that's okay. The two issues with like trusting Gemini, right, let's say, are, um, are we going to run away with your Bitcoin? 
I think that answer is pretty much, it is no, but I think, you know, other people think it's no too, right? Like we're regulated by the New York State Department of Financial Services. You know who we are. Like we're just not going to run away with your Bitcoin. Um, It just doesn't make any sense, right? For us to do that. Um, The second question is, okay, are you going to, are we securing your Bitcoin as well as you could secure it yourself? And the answers are is probably yes. Um, very much yes for almost 99.9%. And I don't think anyone can secure your Bitcoin better than the way we do it. So you're either matching Gemini or you're below it because we have the best security experts in the world. And our cold storage system has been engineered with hardware security modules. It's distributed. It's multi-sig. It's geographically distributed, um, multiple custodians. So I don't think there's any company or individual in the world who's engineered a better uh, cold storage security system than us. So um, it's sort of one of those things that like um, you want to leave that to the experts and most people aren't experts and they're more likely to lose their password, get it stolen by, you know, um, the person who's coming in to fix the sink. Um, You know, all those stories you hear the person, the laptop and the, in the garbage dump and they're like, digging it out and stuff. So it's very hard. It's a very hard problem. We've spent years and much money and many experts solving it. So the chances are that someone else is going to solve it better than us are very low. So then your only question is, can you trust us not to run away with it? And the answer is yes. So that's why I think that the Gemini's, the Coinbase's, I think that's why 99% of of, um, the world will, will rather use those than trying to do it themselves because it's it's more likely that you'll screw it up. And look, these are the, the same people who say like, oh, not your keys, what, uh, you know, not your Bitcoin. Like most people get into a cab like and don't even put a belt on, you know? <laughs> and it's just like what? Like, like physics doesn't work in a cab? And I've heard this argument like, oh, only in the front seat I wear a belt. Like, okay, so physics stops working in the back seat. Um, People take, I see people. Yeah, people people um, misprice risk all the time. Humans are. Totally. This is the best one, right? During COVID, you see people on city bikes with the COVID mask and no helmet. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, oh, I don't, nothing to protect in my brain up here, but I just want to protect my lungs from COVID when, um, and they're young people and they're like low risk people. So they're totally screwing it up, right? Um, so that's a long winded way of saying, I think, um, I think, Overall, people will choose to use um, companies like Gemini to custody. And uh, so, so where are you going with Gemini? What's your what's your grand vision here? Where do you want to go with it? So we we are global. We're in many many con- countries. There's a list on our website, but U.S., Canada, U.K., Europe, Singapore, Hong Kong, Australia. So most of the world. And I'm leaving out some countries, but it's there. Um, Right now, it's buy, sell, store crypto. Um, but we want to increase those money verbs to earn, to spend, earn. Um, you know, all of these other behaviors that you do so that, you know, we started off and we very much were a fiat on-ramp into the crypto universe. So if you have cash in your bank and you want to, your value's there, you want to put your value in cryptocurrency, get onto the blockchain, you open up a Gemini account because you can link your fiat bank and we're a fiat on ramp into that world. But right now, uh, the world's still maturing, right? The crypto universe where people still do most of their banking, most of their financial activity outside of crypto. But we want to keep people, we want to get people over the bridge and stay there so they can actually never leave the crypto universe. And so the mainland is legacy finance. Crypto is sort of an island, but we want to see that inversion where crypto becomes the mainland and um, legacy finance is just sort of this dinosaur that is like slowly fading away. It's kind of layering on financial services layer to the existing kind of store of money layer is the the next phase. You said transfer of money in and out. That's the first thing. Storing it's the next. And then it's all the other things we do with money, such as... Yeah, like so, so like, okay, you can buy, sell... Bitcoin, you can store your Bitcoin, your Ether, but um, generally speaking, your equities uh, activities happen outside of crypto. Uh, so could you trade a share of Apple? Basically, so you don't have, Gemini is a one-stop shop, right? 
in all assets. So Bitcoin is gold on the blockchain. Ether is like digital oil. But every asset in the future is going to be on a blockchain. So equities, um, we're already seeing this with non-fungible tokens, digital art and collectibles. We have a platform for that called Nifty Gateway. So all these things that are assets, like the comic books you grew up reading, the baseball cards you collected, those are now being put on a blockchain because everybody realizes or people are starting to realize the physical nature of it is actually not a feature, it's a bug. Like it's not about the physical nature of it. It's the scarcity, it's the uniqueness. Um, and, and so all of these assets are gonna move onto blockchains and Gemini is your one-stop platform to do whatever it is you want to do, whether it's you want to issue, sell, earn. So when, how far away are we from the tokenization of everything from IP rights to social media stars through to physical property? How far are we from it? I mean, we kind of know it's coming, but it feels like it's a heavy slog to make much progress. That's a good question. I mean, yeah, it, it, do, it does feel like a bit of a slog um, and that there's going to be other things like DeFi, which is decentralized finance, which is all these financial services being sort of rebuilt permissionless on the Ethereum blockchain. So you can go uh, post collateral and borrow or lend um, or trade in these decentralized exchanges. Um, and that's been... Uh, sort of exploding over the past uh, six six or so exploding months. Exploding and imploding as well. It's doing the classic early phase. Yeah, the, exactly. It's uh, fits and starts a little bit. And, and some projects are taking off and others um, not doing so well. But um, it's sort of this Cambrian explosion of new ideas and financial services reimagined in a permissionless fashion. Um, <clears throat> that's really exciting to see. Um, sort of that unbundling and attacking a lot of these centralized things that exist in the legacy financial world. In terms of like artists' rights, for example, um, I'm not really sure. I think there's probably good headway made in the next decade. I'm not sure exactly where it comes from. Um, if you've seen that movie, Searching for Sugarman, the way they sort of um, found him is they followed the money. They're like, where are all these royalty checks going? And they tracked it to some PO box um, in Detroit somewhere and they were able to locate him that way. But when you look at um, people, if you've ever done like a commercial or something and you get a royalty and sometimes the, the, the royalty is like less than the postage of, of the stamp, you know, they send you and you're like, pull out a check and you're like, it's 20 cents. <laughs> you know, it costs more to to put this together. Um, that is, that's so We've backwards, actually right? A couple of those from our cameo on Silicon Valley. We get okay. for like a dollar, a dollar 23 cents, like. And you'll find all the middlemen have taken all the middle. I mean, you could have earned $3, right. but somebody's taken all of it. Yeah, I know. Totally. Jeez. totally. It, no, um, maybe, maybe it was a million. I don't know. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who knows? Yeah. Um, yeah, we have no way to verify that. Um, and that's really how money and checks and all that stuff has been working for, for a long, long time. Um, and so I, that obviously all goes on to a blockchain of some sort um, and gets digitized. I'm not sure there's a ton of um, motivation from within the current system. That's kind of the irony. Um, who solved? Uh, music was broken. Who solved it? Uh, Silicon Valley. Movies were broken. Who who solved it? Silicon Valley, Netflix. It usually comes from the outside because the insiders are just not incentivized to change anything. You see this with the most recent election. Um, people are, you know, worried about, oh, you know, machines, fraud, all this stuff. Who's changing it? Nobody's actually incentivized to change it. Once you're in power, you just accept the status quo because it's generally better for you um, than, than the challenger, we could have changed our, our voting systems for decades. Um, of course, we, we haven't. And, and there probably won't be much movement on that front for, for a long time. Uh, regardless of whether or not there's fraud, the system, the fact that it's a mail-in uh, you know, ballot system seems uh, a little bit mail -mail. broken. Mail-mail in and, 2020. Yeah, and we haven't really solved the identity problem. A mail-in ballot... Uh, you you draw your signature. And so some human is looking at your signature 
versus what's on file. Yeah, I mean, how, I, how does that work? That's extraordinary, right? Because India solved this with this Aadhaar system, which is you know fingerprint or retina scans. And look, that's not distributed, but digital um, kind of digital KYC and, and, and digital identities, and that has to come as well. Because even in this world of social media, it's desperately needed now that people have some verifiable entity who they are. Because trust is yeah. breaking down. We talked about trust before, but trust is breaking down all sorts, all over the place because of these new systems. Yeah, and and I think that you know there there will naturally be probably some resistance in the U.S. to things like um, retina and and all that uh, stuff. I mean, I think India did it sort of in one fell swoop overnight, like literally. Strong you have no choice. Yeah. Gun to your head. You you better sign up, or you're not going to get paid. Um, in the U.S., um, I think there's a lot of people who would be against that. I mean, looking at um, things with, you know, the vaccine rollout or, or the, the discussion around that, many people like don't trust it and won't do it. Um, that is one of the challenges to distribution is actually getting people to take it. Um, so not trying to go down into that, you know, uh, area, but but it's an example of how it's sort of one of the challenges. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep it out of there um, for now. Um, but, but going I think, back to the the conversion conversation, um, we sort of deal with this in Nifty Gateway too. It's like we're not trying to convert the art collect the boom, boomer art collectors, like the seventy five year olds who collect paintings and who buy paintings and from Chelsea galleries. Like we're this is art collection for the next generation. It's almost like Tyler, can you sorry, can you just explain what Nifty Gateway is? Oh, for, it's a for platform. people who don't understand. Yeah, sure. It's a platform to buy, sell, and store non-fungible tokens. The acronym is NFT, or you can say NIFTIs for slang. And they're it's basically they're one-of-a-kind assets that represent art, digital art or collectibles, like a picture. And an artist can go on Nifty Gateway and create one piece of work, maybe for 10 editions or like two of two. Um, and it's all enforced by, the scarcity is enforced by the blockchain. So if you think about like Instagram, you go on Instagram, you click liking a picture, right? But what if each picture on an artist's profile was an asset and there could be five of them or 10 of them. And instead of clicking and liking, you could actually purchase. And it was a supply and demand market. And you, you owned one of five of these in the, in the world that there will never be more than five. You could authenticate in the blockchain. It was created by this artist. Um, so it's like putting money, economic, you know, supply and demand on top of Instagram. We, we've seen it in the gaming world, right, with skins. Totally. Digital, digital assets have value. You know, I didn't grow up in an era where it did. Most of us didn't. In fact, the Gen Z only know that world. You know, we think buying a shirt from a fancy place or an expensive watch is our value statement and our status symbol. They they don't mind whether it's digital or real. No, they they buy they buy a dance in Fortnite. Um, they go to raves inside Fortnite. The only problem with buying and collecting those digital assets is you're trusting the publisher, right? So if like Epic Games goes out of business or prints more of the battle axes, and all of a sudden yours isn't that scarce. Whereas with Nifty Gateway, we've put that all under the blockchain. Um, so the scarcity, the additions of what the artist is doing is enforced by the math, the cryptography of the blockchain, the same stuff that enforces that there's only going to be 21 million Bitcoin. So you could actually buy a Nifty and people have bought an NFTs that are worth $65,000 or even more because the, enforced, the, the scarcity being enforced, the authenticity, all the forgery problems of the traditional art world are gone. Um, but like our audience, they're, you know, it's a range, but, but it's like a different type of art medium. It's a different type of collector. And we're not relying on converting, you know, the existing art world. We're building a new one. And, and do you I, think that's going to just remain as art or do you think you're going to end up with all sorts of NFTs on this? Well, you can do amazing things. So like um, we have DJs creating art that's 3D, like moving picture, right? With a soundtrack. So, so like, the new album cover, right? Instead of like what... Video, right? It's all right. NFT. Um, and you are only one of the few people in the world that own this music video. So you can sort of box 
uh, digital assets. So digital art's been around forever, but how do you package it? How do you buy it? How do you, how, how does an artist create like a, you know, digital art and sell it or make it scarce? And, you know, why, give does, it and why does somebody like Getty not put all the Getty images on a blockchain? Because they have a problem with, with IP rights. And this solves huge amounts of their problems. You know, they bought all of the digital rights to everything um, and then distribute it. I mean, I, I can see it beyond just an artist, but just anything with digital rights is a huge problem in the current internet world. And blockchain solves a lot yeah, of that. I mean, they, they totally should. Um, I, so what I found is, is that it's very much like a generational thing. I never meet someone who's like under 25 who is a skeptic of... Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies. No, like, they grew up digitally native. They, they grew up more online than they did offline, right? Yeah. More of their life, the things that are important to them, their social you know, tribe is on social media. It's about getting likes. It's, it's, it's online. You know, they rarely go offline. You meet someone over like 55 and chances are they're a skeptic of Bitcoin because they... You know, I think the mind loses some plasticity. You build these skills, you become a banker, a partner at a bank, and all of a sudden this thing's going to disrupt it. And this mountain that you climbed, you've got to come down and climb but a new also, one. You have an inherent need for the status quo to continue. The more yeah. you invested in it, yeah, right? because you're you, invested in it, you're 20 years you old. You're not the game. You know, yeah. you figure out how to make money, you're on top of the hill. Like, this is a great game. Let's keep it going. You're Gen Zer. You have nothing to lose. You didn't spend 25 years building an asset, building a skill set, building a core competency that now you have to disrupt to stay relevant. So it's a blank slate. So when someone says Bitcoin, you say, cool, what's that? Like, that's new. But if you're entrenched, it's, it's innovator's dilemma. You know, it's why these companies um, end up stop innovating. They just protect the franchise and they die you know, a slower or very fast death. Um, and it's the same thing with, with cryptocurrencies. So we don't have to convert um, you know, the boomers, although I'll say a lot of the boomers get it, you know, especially the really uh, sophisticated ones who understand what's happening at the Fed, who pay attention to the money printing, um, to the deficit spending. I mean, the US hasn't run a budget has only run a budget surplus four times in the last 50 years. Ross Perot is an independent uh, candidate in 92. He ran on balancing the budget. He was slamming the panic button and be like, this is crazy. It was in 92. It's before all the printing that happened after. It was before um, the printing in the crisis, the TARP, and it was before the printing in the last decade, and it was before this. So that was like 30 years ago. He was he was getting traction because he was worried about what was happening to the U.S. dollar, and it's getting to a point now where, like, how do you how do you get off this track? You know, both parties. There's no hard money party anymore. It's not like the Republicans, the Democrats aren't the same thing when it comes to printing, running debts, um, and, and and you know financing government operations. So, um, the question is like, how does this end? And at some point the math becomes so impossible, right? It, uh, I don't know if, who said um, compound interest is, or, you know, is the eighth wonder of the world. I think it was Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein or, or Warren Buffett. It, maybe it was Gandhi. I don't know. Um, but basically, you want things compounding for you, your wealth growing overnight and, you know, compounding. But you don't want your your debt obligations compounding against you. And that's, obviously what's happening. And the math, um, the ability for us to actually service our debt is just going to be, you know, impossible, not believable. Uh, and, and, and the math just won't work out. And I think that um, these fiat currency regimes will collapse. I hope they don't. But who's, who's going to, like, get us off this path that we've been on? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So, it leads me to the next bit central bank digital currencies. I mean, they're clearly coming, right? 
they're all the ECB, the BOJ, the IMF, the BIS, I mean, the Bank of England, I mean, everybody is saying it's coming. That's going to be another game changer. Um, it's also a game changer because even today you just saw the G7 are like, well, you can kind of tell they don't really like stable coins. What's your whole thing about how this is going to emerge, right? Because the stable coins, cryptocurrencies and central banks all in the same space, can they all coexist? Um, I, you so, know, yeah, let's hear your thoughts. I mean, well, the, the I mean, okay, a central yeah, bank is showing so, a, a stable, their own currency um, digitally. That's just like a different factor of fiat. It is. So I don't think that solves the underlying whole fiat's problem. Yeah. But it's a whole change, right? It's a it's a you know, if we talk about the actual change, here's another thing that can change the system for a while longer. It's still fiat, it doesn't get rid of yeah, that. Yeah, it, it is interesting that we would be moving off like physical printing presses to sort of a blockchain or node like system. And I think that does sort of benefit the entire space, um, but it still sort of takes me back to the fiat problem. I think the reason why central banks don't like stable coins in the current iteration is because they are issued by private companies. And one of the companies that wants to issue one is one of the largest companies in the world, Facebook. Um, and, and, and sort of the money largest has- network in the world. That's exactly, terrifying. right? It's-, it's um, a massive project with massive scale or potential scale. Money has been the domain of governments for a long, long time. They don't want to cede that control. Um, so I think that's where a lot of that FUD around stablecoins is coming from. And Tyler, you, you've done a little more thinking well, and tweeting yeah, no, on it's, this area. It's bankers have been the protectors of the currency. They're the distribution pipes when the government wants to get it out. Um, and all of a sudden, Facebook, Facebook or private tech companies will become the issuers of these stable coins, and they'll really be the protectors of the currency. And so I think this isn't, I think the, it's more coming from like bankers who don't want to lose their, you know, their post position on like, you know, when the Fed prints money or whatever, it comes to us and you got to come to us, right? So like bankers are kind of like the miners of fiat currency, they perform a service. They get paid. But the central bank digital currencies might clear out the banks anyway, right? Because exactly. Yeah, no, totally. And I'm not sure, I haven't paid too close attention whether the banks like that. But yeah, why wouldn't every US citizen have a bank account with the Fed? Why not? Yeah. And as long as you've got a fintech layer on top that we can get all the services, like Gemini, I can use all my stuff, I can mingle it around, I on-ramp and off-ramp, why do we need a bank? It's That's a great a question. question. And and wasn't there a huge issue of even getting people in the U.S. like their their checks, their stimulus checks? Yeah, mail makes no it's sense. It's actually like, hard to do helicopter money. Like, I can't believe we're talking about snail mail to get people money or to cast votes in 2020. It's really embarrassing. Yeah, and can't we can't even invented? We have cryptography. We have all the building blocks to get people their money and allow them to cast their votes by sending an email, and we just can't get our act together to do it. And we, yeah, so we can't even do helicopter money. I, in my, my, my thought process is this entire thing is going to change and integrate fiscal and monetary policy together. Now, that still accelerates the end game, which is, you know, you're giving an unlimited check. But what you've got is actually pretty powerful because you can create stimulus. You can create behavioral incentives with central bank money now because I can give you a negative interest rate because you're a saver and I can give somebody else a positive interest rate because they're a student. I can also give you a stimulus because you own a restaurant, but you have to spend it in these places. It can all be programmed now. So it's, and I was listening to Benoit Couré from the ECB and now the BIS. I mean, they're clearly going to go down this path where you've got programmable money. It's, it's fascinating because macro policy changes forever. Fiscal and monetary all kind of merges. I, yeah, that sounds uh, great. And I read this article a long time ago, like self-driving money, you know, um, and it said a lot of this stuff, like we could actually know the supply of like M1, M2, like down to a penny. We know everything we can pull, the Fed can pull the levers, like you say, dual interest rates, um, you know, help certain sectors, certain people. I mean, it would be just so much more scientific in advance and, and like data driven, like data. Yeah, so you could use big data, you can use behavioral sciences, 
and you can create all sorts of incentive-based systems because then you've got a you know a purely incentive-based system where you can distribute right this is, this is governments we're talking about <laughs> and they're going to fuck it up for everybody by yeah. you know becoming china because they can't help it because they want power yeah yeah um and and it probably would bring some transparency to to well, the citizen you couldn't have housing. what's that like tarp where this wall of money just goes to all of these people you can't do that with a with um, a central bank digital currency because it's all tradable, tra- trackable. So right, right. But like, how do these conversations go behind like, you know, uh, the curtain? It's like the Wizard of Oz, like, you know, the Fed, like it's it's a mystery, right? And and uh, there's no clarity on how the decision's made. It's just like may wave the magic wand, Powell says this or that. I mean, it's, it's insanity. Um, you would never invent money Though, and have it look the way it works in the U.S. Let's put 12 people behind a curtain and have them control everything. And I got it. We'll, we'll distribute it to this elite class of bankers, and, and that'll go well. Um, no wonder the bankers always end up on their feet when there's an issue or whatever. So, yeah, like more transparency, more scientific data analysis behind this. I think that's all great. But I love the fact that Bitcoin is, you know, not coming from a government. I love the competition aspect of it. And then people can just get a Chinese menu of, of choices and be like, you know what? Like, I trust Gemini Stablecoin because I know the twins or I saw them on this podcast. Um, or I'm going to go buy DAI or use DAI because it's algorithmic. Um, Bitcoin is non-government, you know, it's just digital gold. And, and you know, the U.S. were pretty privileged um, that we have a pretty good fiat currency, but Zimbabwe, Venezuela, Argentina, I mean, it's so sad, like the, the wealth that gets just destroyed um, with inflation and defaulted currencies. Like, you know, they take ferries over to Uruguay to get dollars, you buy motorbikes, you buy bricks, you do all these crazy things because you can't trust the currency. So all these capital controls, these people need um, options, right? And, and the governments need to stop having monopolies because as the famous quote goes, right? Power crops, absolute power crops, absolutely. So you've got that, to- That's a good, that's a good, um, uh, just sort of reminds me on the, on the um, point you were asking about sort of what's next for Gemini. And one of the areas, one of the things is we are in, in sort of most of the developed world, but at some point I'd really love to get down into the developing world where, where crypto is really needed um, in, in a big way, whether it's hyperinflation or there's just sort of not a infrastructure or a system there. There's um, a billion plus people unbanked in the world and many are banked people. And that this technology can solve for that problem better than any that we've seen to date. Um, so, you know, that's sort of the longer game is, is trying to get into those areas that, that really need it. Um, cause I don't think, you know, uh, Bitcoin people aren't clamoring, you know, now I think people sort of see the light in the U S but, um, you know, it's not the necessarily the most pressing priority for some individuals as it is in say Venezuela or other hyper inflation environments. Yeah. I mean, I was speaking to, I was introduced to a family office in, where are they now? They're probably in Mexico city, but they're, Latin American family. Um, these guys were mining Bitcoin in Venezuela for zero cost up until the government shut them down. Um, so these guys were very involved in the space and basically are setting up a multifamily office for these big Latin American families, which is about 10 trillion of wealth down there. Um, all of these guys have to have dollars and they can't get them half the time because they keep them getting cut off or, you, or you've got, you've either got currency restrictions or you've got an imploding currency. It's very hard to get your money out. So these guys are um, building out multifamily office because everybody's understanding Bitcoin very quickly and how useful it is. These guys used to be dollars and gold and they're thinking, wow, okay, Bitcoin really solves a lot of problems because they don't have this dollar shortage issue of trying to buy dollars. You just buy Bitcoin and you don't have the same issue. So, you know, I, I think all of these guys, whether it's in, 
if you look at the exchange volumes and stuff, it's Venezuela, it's Colombia, even South Africans are huge users of this because they've got the inherent problems of currency controls and um, weakening currencies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, even look at the, the central banks are stocking up on gold. They say everything's fine. QE infinity, no big deal. Like, this is normal. Um, but don't really listen to what they say. Look at what they do and how they act. Um, they are stocking up on gold because they understand what they're doing and they understand the problem they're creating with the, the money printing. And one day, uh, not too far from now, that's going to be central banks stocking up on Bitcoin, just like Michael Saylor and MicroStrategy, just like Jack Dorsey and Square. Every company, multinational or whatever, public traded, every large company is going to need tre- their treasury invested in Bitcoin. It will be unrespons- irresponsible not to. I think central banks are going to do the same thing, seven wealth funds. So when you look at the fact that only two companies that we know are publicly traded, and we would know because they have to disclose this if there was more, out of all the companies out there, um, it's, it's so early, right? If every Fortune 500 or 1,000 company does what these two just did, a tremendous amount of, of wealth comes into this space because Bitcoin and crypto is primarily been a, a retail phenomenon thus far. It's really been driven by uh, people's personal accounts, not really their hedge fund money, their LP money, but really their personal money. Um, but that's started to change, right? As we mentioned before with legendary investors like Paul Tudor Jones, Stan Druckenmiller, and now, now we have companies that are doing this. So the dominoes are like starting to fall and eventually it's going to be a central bank. And some very smart company is going to take a, a country is going to take a huge position in Bitcoin and talk about it. Game theory suggests that if it's the hardest form of money, one of these countries is going to have a change of government is going to say we're going to solve the problems and we're going to buy Bitcoin as part of our reserves. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I tweeted about this. I said the trade of the century is still out there for a couple of people, a couple of hedge fund managers. It'll be as great as the Zoros breaking the pound trade, you know. A couple of people take a $100 million position in Bitcoin hedge fund managers and go talk about it, whether it's a Bill Ackman, Ray Daly, or, or anyone who's got a fund. Um, and that, look, our thesis is that Bitcoin 30x is from here because if it's digital gold, it disrupts gold. Bitcoin's market cap is 300 billions, right? In the 300 billion, gold is 9 trillion. The above ground gold is 9 trillion. So if Bitcoin's market cap is $9 trillion, then each Bitcoin will be worth $500,000. And so a $100 million trade in Bitcoin right now for a hedge fund will turn into $3 billion. Yeah. That I've is, never seen a risk reward like it in my entire career, and I've been doing this 30 years. And, and that's why it's so crazy that it hasn't happened yet. Maybe it's, hap- it's happening. We just haven't heard of it. Um, and that's why Michael Saylor just bought fifty more billion, uh, fifty more million Bitcoin. People say, "Oh, is it is it is nineteen too high?" Well, it's not too late. Look at look at what Michael Saylor just did. He took fifty million dollars in Bitcoin position because he obviously thinks that's going up. There, there's a, there's a psychological barrier around nineteen twenty thousand, and people I think are a little scared of it for some reason. They they think it looks expensive. Our our viewpoint, of course, is that look. If you bought into Amazon in 2014, it might look expensive compared to where it was in 2000. Um, still an amazing trade. It's probably at what five, six times from there. I mean, that's a tremendous trade. It's probably doubling every every year. Um, and we think there's a 25, 30x from here on sort of the conservative bull case if Bitcoin were to dethrone gold. But we think it actually has greater promise than that Um, because a lot of people can't really get access to gold, um, if you think about it, Uh, whereas really anybody with an internet connection gets access to Bitcoin and it's more smart devices on the planet than people. Um, So yeah, the access will be there um, for, for digital gold. So super, super exciting, but interesting to see the kind of the emotions and the irrational aspects of the market sometimes my my feeling is if we breach the the 20,000 when we breach the 20,000 
dollar barrier, it's sort of all bets are off and things start running in a pretty exciting way. Kind of like the four minute mile, you know, as soon as Roger Bannister broke it, someone the next week and then kept like, it became, Oh yeah, four minutes, not that big of a deal. Um, uh, so, but, but look, the game theory is that you don't want to be the last one into Bitcoin. Um, and so two publicly traded companies have done it. A couple of hedge fund managers have talked about it. Um, so it's really early, but you don't want to be the last manager. in. Somebody gave me a great tip. Now we're, we're humans, right? Humans are pretty stupid. We anchor ourselves on certain things. So you've got a chart on the screen of which we all look at is our Bitcoin chart, right? So the all time high is 20,000. So we look at that and we, that's what we anchor ourselves on. So the little trick is change the scale on your chart and squidge it down to the bottom. And what happens is you immediately think, oh, it's only just started its move. It's the same chart. It's, it's behavioral anchoring. So that's what I urge everybody to do who's like thinking, oh, it's expensive. Behaviorally anchor the chart. The other thing I do is use regression lines and you can use it on a log chart. And suddenly it gives you just a pretty simple understanding of where price moves and how it moves. And it, it just moves according to Metcalfe's law most of the time. Yeah, it's it's so um, thematically, if you just do something simple like regression analysis and, and plot that line, you're like, oh, okay, I see where it's going. Yes, there's there's peaks and valleys, but like, you know, we always say like, if you're taking a Bitcoin position, prepare to hold it for five or 10 years. Don't, don't get in if that's not your time horizon, just for, forget it. And the same is sort of true with gold, right? Who wants to trade around gold? Um, that's that's not the the trade here. But if you can hold this thing, and I think the same is true for Ether for five to ten years, then nineteen thousand dollar, twenty thousand dollar entry point is going to be a very fine entry point. Um, but it is so interesting how as humans we have these um, anchoring and biases and things like that. The other big one is a lot of people are like, wait, I want to own one whole Bitcoin, and they don't realize a that they can own a fraction of a Bitcoin, um, but there's like a mental block or a, a psychological because, because again, the anchoring bias is that, yeah. gold, gold coin, banknote, right? Physical things. So yeah. the anchoring bias we have is that's all you can own. It's, right, that's all you can own or my ego says I need to own some a whole one. Um, I've heard that from like young people as well. Um, and there was a movement early on in Bitcoin to move at a decimal point. Um, you know, the micro Bitcoin, um, but that never really took off. But I guess if like Gemini and Coinbase and all of us said, hey, let's make Bitcoin 2000. About Bitcoin share splits. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, now? Yeah. Yeah. Or just change our UI. You know? like, uh, so it's like you have 200 of this or, you know, it costs $200 or something. Um, you know, you know um, yeah, it, it is. I mean, people make, uh, they, they split companies for, for that purpose. Um, so here's an interesting fact. There's something like 40, 40 million plus millionaires on the planet. There's of course only 21 million Bitcoin. There's not enough whole Bitcoin, not that you have to buy a whole for millionaires on the planet. So to Tyler's earlier point, like you don't want to be the last one in, um, and there's going to be millions of millionaires that can't, that will never own a full Bitcoin. Yeah, uh, I love that. It's empowering, right? I've always said to people, just to finish off, I've always said to people, this is the biggest legal front-running opportunity I've seen in my entire life because we know the institutions have to come in. The more the market cap goes up, the more the institutions have to come in because it's you, when you've got this, it's a ridiculous reflexive loop. When you've got the best performing asset class on earth, that market cap is now becoming investable by institutions, it drags in institutions, which brings the market cap up, which drags in institutions. That yeah, cycle yeah. is to play out. It hasn't even started. And a lot of people don't understand that aspect that for some institutions to invest in an asset class like Bitcoin, it has to have a certain size, right? Because they're only writing a check of 50, $100 million per investment. Like if Bridgewater... I think one of the largest macro hedge funds in the world says, hey, we want to put a Bitcoin trade on. They're not going to be buying millions of dollars. They're going to be buying a billion plus dollars. But if they look at the market and the economic sort of bandwidth or liquidity is only $100 million, they might you know, say, well, if we buy 1%, we're just going to own too much of this thing. Let's just wait for it to get 
more expensive counterintuitively, and then we can go in. So we're getting to that threshold where institutions can actually sort of get in uh, based on their rule set or bylaws or whatever it is. Um, and, and there's those institutions who, who really want to get in and wanted to get in at $100 billion and they can't convince their, no, their uh, the whole space management. Is, the whole space is short upside call options. So it's a really complicated thing. The more the price rises, everybody has to buy back those call options because as the price rises, they have to get in. It's, you know, it's going to be an ex- a I true mean, experience. We were having conversations a couple of years ago with institutions and they're like, it's just not expensive enough for us right now. As your point, and at some point they'll be like, they'll see like a hundred thousand Bitcoin. Be like, okay, we're gonna plow our endowment into that, um, and it goes even higher. So it, it hasn't even started. You know, we're just seeing institutional, sophisticated people start to trickle in. But the biggest money is still on the sidelines, but it's coming. I mean, it's so inevitable, and it has been from my point of view since we, you know, I started looking at this eight years ago. Like Bitcoin was always going to happen. It's just we didn't have the computer science breakthroughs to make it possible. But it was always going to happen, and it is going to happen. It's happening. So, Guys, thank you ever so much for your time. Really enjoyable conversation, and hopefully we've given people something to think about as well. Yeah, thank Thank you so much. Take care. Awesome. See you. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.